Join us each week as Andrew, Ray, and others bring us in on one of their weekly phone conversations with an amazing agent. This is Little Oak Weekly. Welcome to Little Oak Weekly. Normally, you'd be hearing Andrew or Ray introducing you who they're about to call for this week's episode. But today, you're stuck with me for a little. I'm Justin Hawks. I manage all the IT for Remax Little Oak, from networks to social media and anything digital, including these podcasts. Andrew was kind enough to inform me this morning, the day before a new episode releases, that he had issues scheduling and didn't have anything ready to go. I thought, what a better time than this to put him in the hot seat, have an episode interviewing him, and give him no heads up on the questions and content we would be discussing. So without any more delay, let's give Andrew Bracewell a call. Hello, sir. Hey, man. How are you? I'm good. Good. Normally, I'd uh, welcome and thank you for joining me, but this is your podcast, so this would be weird. <laughs> <laughs> I well, I'm I'm excited to do this format. I've I've done a lot of podcasting, but I've never actually got to be the person getting interviewed, so it's kind of fun. Yep. So instead, I'll just thank you for not having a, an episode recorded and ready, and uh, we'll do this instead. <laughs> <laughs> so I had a chance to chat with uh, some of our agents really quickly today and get some questions. So I think we'll just jump right into it. First off, though, a lot of people are just curious how long you've been an agent. 2003. So 18 years. I got licensed, I think it was October 2003, maybe September, something like that. What, what was it that got you into real estate? What was sort of the driving force for that one? It was my lifelong relationship with Ray. Maybe I'll, I'll retell this. Maybe some people have heard this, but, uh, he grew up with my mom. And so the, I, I've literally called Ray, uncle Ray, uh, my entire life. He's known me. There's a picture of him holding me as a baby. Um, so I, I knew him my whole life, but there was a particular time in my life where I was, um, making money in between semesters and college. And I thought I was going to go back for another year at the college I was at. And I phoned him up and I asked him if I could come live with them to, uh, work in the North. Um, I did a little bit of work on the rigs, uh, the oil rigs, and then did some drywalling as well. So I spent, I was, I think it was when I was 19 or 20, something like that. And I lived with Ray and Patsy for, I want to say maybe four months, five months, something like that. It probably wasn't even that long. I think I, I quit early and left because I couldn't handle the North. The North kicked my butt. But, uh, but in living with them, uh, it was very formative time. I observed him in real estate in Fort St. John, and that was my first exposure to, I should say first intimate exposure to anyone who worked in that way. I had known Ray my whole life, but I'd never observed any kind of capitalistic you know, free market enterprise, whatever type of environment. I wasn't raised in an environment like that. And so, yeah, that was just something that kind of blew me away and that stuck with me. And then I think it was a couple of years later when I had fallen in love and I was engaged and I realized I needed to make a living and provide for a family. That moment came back to me and I remembered that. And, uh, there was probably some other interactions in, in that time that I'm forgetting, but, but Ray and I reconnected and I was living in Manitoba at the time I'm from BC, but my, uh, fiance at the time, now wife was from Manitoba. I had moved out there. And so we got married in 2003 and sometime in 2002, I'd made the plan to get into real estate. 
did the studying while I was in Toba. So then when we hit BC in the summer of 03, I hit the ground running. And like I said, I was licensed in September or October, something like that. But sorry, long-winded to your original question, what inspired me? It was definitely observing Ray in the business in Fort St. John. Did you go straight into the team life as, a, as an agent? Not technically. I mean, I did pretty quick. Like I, in 2004, it, I think it was like in the Christmas time of 2003, that was the time when uh, Randy Dick was, he had just created his first team. So he had Jonathan Gelderman working with him at the time. I think Jonathan had joined him in 2002 or sometime around that time. So I got licensed in whatever that was, the fall of 03. And then by January 2004, I did join Randy's team and and we worked together all the way through until the end of 2009, November 2009. And that was when you broke out on your own? Correct. Yeah. So November 09. Uh, I left the team and, uh, and just have been doing, doing this ever since. So we don't have a ton on the agent side, but I am curious now we're a little over a year into the pandemic. Have there been any major changes to how you run your business through this? Uh, sure. Absolutely. Like you mean, you're talking just my personal sales business, what I'm doing differently. Yeah, that's right. Just on the agent side. That's right. Yeah. Like a, a ton. So I would say that. I mean, number one, you know, Zoom, the way we communicate has changed. And I would say that I've embraced that quite a bit. I mean, I I would say I've used it for my benefit. I'm, I wouldn't say that I'm scared to get together with people face to face or, or anything like that, but I've realized the efficiency that can come from operating like this. So for a person who's fairly busy, I have really adopted and embraced this new way of living where we, you know, we only see people when we absolutely have to. I feel like there's a lot less wasted time. Um, There's a lot less tire kicking appointments. And of course, doing anything over phone call or through Zoom is from an efficiency perspective is, is, is better. So that's changed drastically. I would say that prior to the pandemic, I would have called myself a face-to-face agent. I would have spent a lot of time with people face-to-face. But I have, um, I've changed that significantly. There's some practical things that I've, I do differently now too. Like just when it comes to like flow and functionality of paperwork prior to pandemic, while I was using DocuSign, I would say that I wasn't using it totally religiously. Like, you know, I was using it the majority of the time, but not all the time. I was still allowing people to go paper if they wanted. I haven't done a paper deal in the last year for sure. I mean, maybe there's one where I had to, but, and then just the habit I've gotten myself into now is, um, I, whatever I'm getting signed, whether it's listing documentation or, or, you know, an offer or whatever, I send everything by PDF in advance for review. And then that can be actually, in some cases, it's like even a week in advance of signing. So like if I'm working on a listing and I know that's coming up, I'll put everything together way in advance, send it for review. And then that way I just know that when we're docu-signing, that's not the first time the client has seen anything. They've had a long chance to review. And I've just, I've really enjoyed that process. I think is it, it, I think it flushes out some really good questions and things that may have been overlooked um, previously. So that's been, yeah, that's been a good process that I've embraced as a result of this. Do you see uh, a lot of those changes continuing after COVID? 
Oh, I, I think in, in many respects, we're never going back to the way things used to be. You know, obviously, I mean, I don't even know how to define what the end of COVID is going to be. Sure. You know, uh, so, you know, will we be back in a world where we have open houses and people shake hands and nobody wears masks? I don't know. I'm not, I, I don't know what that looks like. I, I don't think, I think what we've learned about COVID is that it's a virus that's going to be around forever. It obviously has the ability to change. We, now we have different variants. And so I don't think we're going to get to a world where we say, oh, that's cute and it's, it's over and done. So as a result of that, I don't think the real estate industry and the way we practice is going to go back to some view of the way we were. I think that for the most part, we're going to continue to operate in the way that we are uh, currently. Let's move on a little bit to the broker side. How long ago was it that you got involved in Remax Ludlow as a broker owner? So the story to that is in 2000, I want to say about 2013, you know, Ray was growing the business actively and he, you know, as, you know, as many people know, he was, I think he was one of the only, if not the only broker owner who was running regular training, at least in the, in the Fraser Valley market. And I think his training when he first started was very, very well attended. And then he started to lean on some other people to help him with training. And I would have been one of the first agents that he looked to for that. And that was around 2013. So I started to get, you know, quite heavily involved in the training side of things, 2013, 2014. And I can't quite remember the year. I want to say it was about 2015. <laughs> I remember where we were in the conversation. Things were going very well, you know, the business was growing and, and Ray was loving what he was doing. And I think he was really loving the training aspect. And I think that was really adding to the brokerage. So he came to me with a plan for the next year. And he's like, hey, you know, I want to show you my, my training plan for the next year. And his, his, what he meant by that was he wanted to show me how he saw me involved uh, in, the, in the training for the next year. And so while I enjoyed training... I, I genuinely feel like I get more from it than the people listening to me do. I, it was, you know, I, I couldn't quite get as excited about it as he could because Little Oak wasn't my company. And then of course the nature of training too, is that when you train, assuming that, you know, people appreciate what they're hearing, they're then reaching out to you on a regular basis. So what it was doing is it was creating work for me because I was having some of our agents, you know, reach out to me in a mentorship type way. And while again, there's, there's benefits to that. It was also causing some stress, uh, on my time. So my response to Ray in that, in that coffee conversation was something to the effect of like, Ray, Hey, you know, if we're going to, if we're going to do this moving forward, we got to get married. Cause you know, uh, as much as you love your kids, they're not my kids, you know, I was speaking metaphorically, obviously. And I said, um, but if we get married, then they will be my kids too. And then I'll be excited about helping them. And so that was, that was the first time that we had a real serious conversation about it. And I'm pretty sure it was 2015. And then from there, there was about two years of, I would say we were, we were doing it. We were figuring out how to do it because things only got formalized. I mean, whatever, you know, there's legal crap, right? Lawyers and paperwork and blah, 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 you know, but, but I think I actually, I don't even totally remember. I think that like, you know, I was officially a part owner uh, in the early part of 2018. We were trying to make it happen in 17, but things were just whatever. The market was busy and, and, and whatnot. So, but I think it was in the early part of 18 
I think even January maybe. So we've just passed three, uh, I guess, official, official years. So, you know, being a successful agent for quite a few years, what, what is the driving force? What's the reason to then switch that hat or add that hat of a broker owner instead of just staying as an agent, even, you know, take the training side out of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I've been asked this a number of times. I would say it's not one thing. And I would say the answer has evolved over time. So when I, you know, like I kind of answered what I said to you, that first meeting with Ray, Mm -hmm. I think it started because of the, the training concept. And so my limited view of broker ownership in that moment was what I had touched, right? Which was training agents. And I considered myself to be, you know, pretty good in the industry. So I think I'm somebody who enjoys new things and challenges. And so I would say in that moment, that was probably the driving force. But then now over the last five years, I would say that that answer has changed significantly, not in that my answer five years ago wasn't accurate, but I would say there's just many more layers to the onion now. There's way more depth. And some of it, I would, some of the, some of the reasons I would give today now, I would say I couldn't possibly know a number of years ago, but today, if I would answer that question, I would say that I really do love the industry. Uh, I think it's really interesting. I think it's a unique opportunity to make a really good living and create a really great lifestyle. I think I've been able to do that for myself and my family. And so I get excited about the opportunity to help others do what I've done. That's one piece. Another piece though, that I find really, really exciting. And I would say I couldn't have possibly known this early on was just the learning to get, learning to help people see more in themselves than they see on their own. And that's not only on the agent side, but it's also on the staffing side. Like, you know, Remax Little Oak is a large organization, right? You know, in and around 200 agents. And then we've got, you know, we can float between 15 and 25 staff. And, and, you know, I have intention of, of growing it. And it's really amazing to, yeah, just to help people uh, realize their potential and to, you know, achieve things that maybe they didn't think they could achieve. So I would, I would imagine that that's a significant part of leadership. I don't know. I don't consider myself a leadership guru, but, but that piece of running the brokerage is really, really life-giving to me. Um, I get really excited and I get full of joy when either an agent has accomplished something that they didn't think they could. And I've played a role in that. Or if a staff member has, you know, taken on something new or grown some area of the business. And I know that they just needed that little nudge. Uh, to get there. That's very, very exciting for me. I find that very, very life-giving. If you look at Remax Little Oak right now in the brokerage, what's your vision for Remax Little Oak? How do you see it today and sort of what do you see it wanting to become? Hmm, that's a big one. Uh, oh, man. I, we, gotta, we can have an hour on that one. So, okay. So, number one, there's a, there's a tagline that we've, you know, quietly started using and maybe some people have noticed it maybe they haven't but it's started appearing in some of our material and it's we have amazing people and i think that everything that we're going to do moving forward is going to be based on that foundation i would say that the lineage of little oak is incredible for that like i've been with the company for 18 years and 
I would say that the the history of Little Oak is that we do always have amazing people. I would say I'm really passionate about growing the business on the backs of amazing people. And so that would be amazing staff people and amazing and amazing realtors. And amazing, I mean, you know, I guess that's a generic term. People could say, well, what do they what, what do you mean by that? But I would just say amazing humans, people, people who make you raise your eyebrows, people who when you meet them, you you walk away and they've left their mark on you. I think that we're loaded with those type of people already. I think that we've added a number of those people as well in my time. You know, like I'm proud of some of the things that we've done in staffing and and some of the agents that we've brought on here um, in, in the last few years. So in general, that's what I see moving forward. Now, more specifically, I think the industry is at a moment where we're seeing some significant shifts and change. And I envision us embracing and being leaders in that, you know, so whether or not that's, you know, technological aspects or, you know, business practice aspects, I want to be on the forefront of that in the industry. And then in terms of like practically, like, you know, when you say growth, what does that mean? I want to grow our reach in the Fraser Valley. So I see new office locations and I see an expansion in the numbers of agents that we have within the Fraser Valley Real Estate Board. And so that would look like, you know, you know, gaining access into new markets that we're not currently in, but, you know, continuing to improve the way we operate already, but then just bringing that into, into new marketplaces. As you've gotten more involved in trying to develop sort of the Remax Little Oak brand, what do you see are some of the biggest challenges going forward in that? Yeah. So there's a unique, there's a challenge in our industry and I, and I don't want to say that I have all the answers to it either. Sure. But we wrestle with the, sometimes there's, there's conflict between the brand of the company and an agent's desire to brand themselves. And so I'm not quite sure, like, that's an interesting thing that's developed in, in, in the industry. Like, you know, if you go back to the eighties, you know, in the early years, um, the brand of the office was everything and, and the agents, you know, actually it was the broker owner that would, would drive all the marketing and all the leads. And the agents, actually everybody back then worked on a split and all the, the leads and opportunity came in through a telephone line because that's what was there. You know, so in, in that environment, the brand and the office was everything. And so, you know, if you look over the last 40 years, we've seen just tremendous shifts in the way the world works. And now an agent... Like in 1985, I would say an agent really didn't have an opportunity or there was no possibility to create their own brand. But today, I would say that's not the case at all. Agents do have the ability to, to make their own brand clearly. And so I think within the industry in general, a cutting edge brokerage, and I want to, you know, I obviously want to want to put myself in this, put us in this conversation is that you know, the value we bring changes over time. And I think the value we bring or we should be bringing to the agents today is different than the way it looked 35 years ago. And so the, the key is, is like figuring out exactly what that is, 
and delivering that in the best way possible. I balance that too with I am a big believer in the brand. I I think there's significant power in the in the Remax brand and in the balloon. And so yeah, it's just you got to I'm I would say I'm holding these two things going, okay, what is this what does this look like moving forward and how do we make these things harmonize the best way we can? Does that make sense? I don't know if I kind of I feel like no, that was that a does. mouthful, but that's a tough question. Yeah, it is. It is a little bit tough. It's a good one, though. With regards to the, the you're talking about the brand and Remax Lidlow's brand, uh, which is a little bit more focused on the brokerage. But, uh, you know, a lot of people are kind of curious on your thoughts. What do you think the role of the brokerage plays in preparing and training agents for being successful in their own careers? Hmm. Good. I think that sales, like at the end of the day, we're still in, we are in sales. We are in the service industry and it's a people industry. So I think there's definitely a role that the brokerage should play in helping, preparing, and teaching people to be the best salespeople they can. So that is, that is something that I think has always been and will always be. Because as much as the industry has changed, we are still in sales. We have to, you know, we get paid to, take on risk and to take on liability and to deal with people's challenges and problems. And so that's a great task. And so I'd say one, one aspect of, you know, the the brokerage's role is to prepare and assist its people in that challenge. I would say though, there's other, there's other aspects to that than just, you know, the actual sales tasks. There's compliance has become a significant thing. Like, you know, as the world has changed and the eyes of the governments and governing bodies have looked closer at the industry, compliance has become a bigger issue. So I think, you know, there's a piece there where, you know, we have to bring significant value to agents. And then, you know, I think management and staffing, you know, and this is where, this is really where the, um, this is certainly one of the the pieces that gave inspiration for the tagline we have amazing people i know a lot of great agents i shouldn't say a lot i mean i know i know great salespeople or great real estate real estate agents who work in very mediocre environments right so they're surrounded by mediocre management mediocre staff mediocre systems and i in my perspective i see how that really negatively impacts those agents' careers. I think a lot of times maybe they don't see it, but I see it. So that is an area that I think, yeah, I'm extremely passionate about. And I think that, you know, we are tasked with adding value to agents' careers through that medium. Uh, The people that we have operating the business in management, obviously, uh, but then staffing, I think, is, is critical to the value that's brought to the agents. All right. So listen, coming from a team with Randy, then you went out on your own and and now you're also doing the broker owner thing. How have you adapted? How have things changed through that process for you? How have things changed for me over the course of the 18 years? That's right. Wow. Okay. (laughs) I'll try not to be too long winded on this one. Okay. So if I were to, I could divide my career up into three pieces. Sure. I would 
I would do it like this. I would say, so my early years, I was afforded incredible opportunity to, you know, work in the team environment that I did. And I gained access to opportunity that I, I otherwise wouldn't have. So that was, that was tremendous. So, um, for that, I'm extremely thankful and will always be thankful. And I think that that, you know, many of those experiences, uh, you know, laid a foundation, which I benefit from forever. And here's the, however, however, I'll say that in that season from 2000, uh, you know, 2004 to 2009, something that I didn't learn was any work-life balance or boundaries. So that was, so that was, you know, that those years, no, I didn't, at that time I was married. I only had my first kid in 2007. And so in, in, it really didn't matter until I started to really experience some conflict in 2007, when my, my oldest daughter Jada was born, the, the context of that environment was, you know, an extreme workaholic environment. And like I said, there was no life boundaries. And so that began to rub significantly in my life. And that was definitely one of the things that, that, I mean, there was a number of reasons why I needed to move on, but that was, that definitely played a role in that, you know, that was that environment and I needed to get out. And so then the next season of my life, which was, you know, 2010 to let's say 2017, early on in 2010, like, you know, I, I had to now reinvent myself. Um, I had had one identity and that identity was, you know, it was part of a big machine. We did a lot of business. We, we had years where three of us did literally over 400 transactions a year, three people. So like, I mean, we cranked hard and, you know, the money was awesome and the awards were awesome, but that was, you know, I was done with that. I didn't want that anymore. I wanted something different. And so I, uh, I had to kind of figure out what I wanted to be. And I somehow or another, I, I found my way coming back to more of a Buffini real estate model where I would use, I would say that what I did previously was very transactional. I would say the Buffini model is very relational. And I think that was my answer to feelings of burnout and, you know, getting tired of, um, sales calls with strangers and people I don't know. And, you know, people being focused entirely on commissions and, and things like that. Like I just, I really needed a break from that. So I worked very hard in 2000, I would say 10 and 11 to kind of rebuild myself and then had an amazing run, you know, all the way through till now, technically. But, but if I were to say that middle season of my career, we say capped it off at 2017, I just, I practiced real estate in that season in a completely different way than I did in the first season. Right. And I, you know, I, I got rid of burnout. I got rid of hating clients and, um, I, I retook some boundaries back in my life. I spent more time with my wife and kids, you know, holidayed more or vacationed more. And, um, and I would say gave myself new oxygen for my career because there was definitely some days, a number of days where I thought about quitting, Sure. which would seem totally ridiculous when you would, if you were to look at, you know, the number of transactions I was doing and, you know, the money that I could make, but that stuff didn't matter. Like I, I was, I was really, really tired of the, um, 
you know, the burned out feeling of working too long and, and, and not having proper balance in life. And then the last season, I would say, you know, I kind of, I don't know, I think there's like a natural progression. I, I would say I ascended into somewhat of a leadership role within the industry. Like I certainly did that within the office long before I even, you know, was in formal ownership or anything like that. I think people started to view me in that way. I mean, <laughs> I should say, I mean, I, I was a, I was young when I got in and I'm still young now. I'm only 40. So I definitely had to fight my early years of being a young cocky dick, mm-hmm. you know, and I was, I was a kid and I was successful and I was confident and probably ran my mouth and did stupid shit. And, um, you know, so I, I think I kind of worked my way out, started to work my way out of that image through 2000, say whatever, the mid to late teens, you know, one thing led to another and here I am owning a brokerage and, and, and I would say this season is, um, is unique in that I'm not focused on myself anymore. And I, and I'm really enjoying that. I think I, it feels new to me that I'm focused on the success of other agents and the, the joy that staff can have in the workplace. So while I still sell real estate, you know, and I still have my career and whatever, you know, I make sales and I got clients that have been with me for a while. That's actually not, I mean, you know, I don't want to say it's not my primary. I mean, obviously I I focus on those people and I do those things, but I have other things I focus on now and I'm, and I am really enjoying that. We talk about the change that you sort of saw in yourself over those 18 years in the business. Was there anything that you saw that just has not changed that seems to have stayed the same since you started to now? Yeah. Trust and authenticity. I, I think that, I think that one of the things that led to my, that has led to my success in my career is that whether it be for good or bad, I'm very honest with my clients. I kind of say it how it is. And, you know, sometimes to the shock of people, I guess, but I, I think authenticity is huge. And I think the public really, all I can say is this, is that, you know, I, in my experience, I think people find that very refreshing. I think there's a lot of people in this world who are trying to sell us something and we know when they're doing it, they're bullshitting us. So I think I've carved out a little niche in my career where I've not been that guy. And so, and my clients have really appreciated that. So that's one thing. And then building trust, like all we're doing is, you know, we are guiding people through very difficult and what can be stressful times in their lives. And trust is the most important thing. If you, if people trust you, then they're going to follow you. And if they don't, then they're not. And so I think that has remained the same and I don't see that changing anytime soon. You know, we all, I mean, I I just think about how I live and operate in my life. You know, if I need something and it's an area that I'm not proficient in, then the first thing I'm doing is I'm asking somebody with whom I trust their advice. And so that's how I live and operate. And I think that's how the majority of my clients live and operate. And they just see me as somebody who they can trust. And I think that that's just, I think the, I think that's what it is in the industry. And I, I've, I've never seen that change in 18 years. I can't imagine that changing anytime soon. And also looking back over that last 18 years, but more on a personal level, are there things you would have done differently? Can you think of anything that through your career you would have done differently? Well, yeah, sure. I would have made, I, I would have made a change earlier 
you know, in, in that first season that I was in when I was burned out, mm-hmm. I think I hung on to that too long. But in saying that, I also, I also want to say that, you know, like some of our greatest lessons are learned <laughs> with some of our greatest pain. And so there was, there was some pain there and had I avoided all the pain, I mean, maybe I wouldn't have learned the lessons that I needed to learn. I needed to learn that it's not okay to trade everything for your career. Sure. And I don't know, I needed that wound or that scar. And so, yeah, I mean, I guess I could say I would have walked away from that and changed things a little bit sooner because there was some damage done in that time, not irreparable, but you know, I had a new baby in 2007 and I mean, to this day, I hardly remember the first year of my daughter's life. I, she was born in January, 2007. I wasn't around. I wasn't around until 2010. So that stings. That's kind of shitty. Um, I remember my son, my son was born in 2009. And so I remember most of his early life. And then my youngest daughter, my last came in 2011. And I remember everything about her because I'd made changes by that time. So yeah, it sucks. Like I, I really don't have a memory of my oldest daughter in her first two years because that was a hot real estate market. I was working like a dog and I had no boundaries and I worked seven days a week, literally seven days a week and long, long days. And I thought I was doing the right thing. Who, uh, who would you say have been some of your biggest influences in your career so far? Well, I mean, obviously Ray, right? I mean, he, he's the one that, that got me in and, and then Randy Dick, I mean, you know, I'm, that was an interesting time, right? Like there's, there was some, there were some great benefits that came from that environment. And then also, as I've talked about, there was some, some things that I learned that I, I didn't want to be a part of anymore and I didn't want to do anymore. So, so I would be, it would be unfair not to, not to mention, not to mention that. And then there's people who have had impacts on me who aren't, um, in real estate. There's a a friend of mine, uh, his name is Jim Barkman. He owned a very successful uh, train and trucking company that people might know. Well, I don't know if they would know Eagle West um, Truck and Crane. He sold it um, a number of years ago. But I mean, this guy is, you know, he's probably nearly 70 years old, but I got to know him, I want to say around 2008 or nine, somewhere in there. And he took a liking to me and um, he has spent a lot of unselfish hours with me, kind of, you know, just speaking into my life and giving me his perspective on things. And I mean, he's, he's like a sage kind of thing, right? Like he's, he's like, he's like a wise man. And so he's had a really significant impact on the way I view business and people dynamics and what's important and what's not important. I've brought some of my most significant challenges to him and he's been a really valuable, um, resource and, and has great ideas. Some of the agents in our office, you know, like guys like Stan Weeb, Gary Dirksen, Larry Siebert, you know, these people, like I, I got licensed when I was, what was I? 20, 22, right? 2003. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 22 years old. I mean, I was a, I was literally a kid and I can't even believe, you know, what I was, uh, what I was able to do in, in the early years, like, you know, in 2004 and five and six. And I would say that, you know, I probably did a lot of dumb things in terms of, you know, whatever in deals or just, you know, being full of myself because I was doing a lot of transactions. And 
I think these people that I've mentioned, along with many others, were incredibly gracious with me and gave me a ton of their time and put up with <laughs> a young kid who was running around selling houses thinking he's hot shit. They've just been nothing but the most gracious people ever to me. John Corey, um, Suk Sidhu, Victor Clausen, Dirk Clausen, Victor's dad. I mean, the list, the list goes on. Todd Hendrickson, Art Hohen. Like, I, yeah, I've just been, these people have all always just been amazing to me. And I don't know why. I don't know that I deserved it, but um, I have nothing but admiration and appreciation for all of them. We, uh, we talked earlier about, you know, the idea of you being a leader, especially now more so uh, as you've moved into this new role. What would you say is your favorite part about being a leader? Uh, seeing the difference I can make in people's lives. It's, it's even like, even that, when you say it like that, it's like, holy shit, that sounds narcissistic. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, like, I don't, and maybe it is like, I don't know, maybe it is right. I, yeah, I, it makes me feel good to know that I've helped somebody else. Maybe that's a nicer way to say it. Sure. But I have, I can see what I've done in other people's lives, either through, you know, like if it's an agent in their sales career and maybe the way they've turned something around or some changes they've made, or I can see how I've maybe, you know, helped a staff member enjoy their job more or help them find a new gear that they didn't think they had or, or whatever. Like that's really invigorating to me to know that I can go to work and, you know, have exponential impact through the lives of other people. I think, I think there was a piece of me that started to feel like the sales of real estate was getting, and I don't, I don't want to say this about real estate sales, but for myself, it was starting to feel a little bit mundane and this, you know, owning the brokerage and, and, you know, leading the brokerage has given me just new renewed energy that I would say is really, really good. And it's all related to helping other people achieve things that they maybe otherwise wouldn't have. How, how do you see the impact of more online brands affecting the business in the coming years? I would say, I don't totally know the answer to that question. I, not for lack of thinking about it. I've thought about it a ton and I would say that I'm, I can give you my best thoughts thus far. I still see in, in a, in a housing transaction, I see two humans needing to interact, right? So you got a buyer and a seller and, and I guess a question I rattle around in my head is, is that do I see a scenario where the buyer and seller will choose or not need, a, you know, a trusted professional to complete that transaction. And I think I'm being unbiased. Like I try really, really hard to obviously be unbiased as I think through this. I think I'm being unbiased when I say, no, I don't see that. And the reason I don't see it is, is, um, as we've witnessed here in the last, you know, 12 months, but even prior to the last 12 months in the, the game of real estate, there is a lot at stake. There's a lot of money at stake. Um, there's a lot of liability and there's a lot of risk. And I think in life, when human beings encounter that amount of liability and risk, at least history shows that we have a tendency to lean on professionals and we like to pay professionals to do things for us when there's that amount of risk and liability involved. 
I don't see that changing. I think that because we are in a personal service industry where I believe, and this is my belief system, but I believe that human beings are going to continue to rely on trusted professionals when they're in situations where there's a lot of risk and liability. So that's my belief system. So that means that for real estate, which is millions of dollars or hundreds of thousands of dollars, I still think that an agent, a human being with a license is going to continue to play a critical role. Now, because I believe that, I also believe that while there are, there's, we are certainly going to adapt and change and there's going to be new business platforms, you know, and we see it already with, you know, online offerings and, and things of that nature. I still think it all boils down to quality people. So you can have, you can have a great idea, you know, where maybe it's a, it shakes the industry a little or, or it causes change or, you know, whatever, you know, stretches us in a way that we've never been stretched. But every one of those ideas, I believe has to be supported by really high level, high quality people, whoever it is that's behind the computer screen, running the CRM or running the platform or, or driving the business strategy or running the marketing strategy or whatever. So I don't see that changing. And, and, and maybe I'm, I'd love to, you know, have the person who asked that question, maybe ask a follow-up question because maybe I'm not quite nailing it, but that's, that's the best answer I could give right now, I guess. So what's, what's your routine look like when you're planning out your week? Do you have like daily or weekly routines you try to stick to? Yes, totally. That's a good question. And that's had to, I've been forced to, to do this more and more and more as I've gotten busier and busier. I mean, you know, I've, I've certainly invited a lot more time challenges into my life in the, in the last uh, few years, but yes. So I, I have first and foremost, I mean, I'm, I believe very wholeheartedly in physical activity. So I work out three times a week, sometimes four, but call it three times a week. And that's in the schedule, consistent, same time, every single week, Monday, 1 PM, Thursday, 4 PM, Saturday, 10 30 AM. And that never changes. And then I start my week with a meeting with my assistant, Christy, who many people know, uh, first thing Monday morning, 8.30. And that's just kind of, you know, whatever, reconnecting after the weekend, um, going over what, we, what needs to get done. Yeah, there's a lot to discuss in that meeting, obviously, you know, both brokerage and, uh, and sales related. And then I, I don't know, I, I don't have a, you know, a hard line in terms of, you know, what I do on certain days, but I would say that I try to, I prefer to, to meet clients, not in the evening. I know this sounds, I know everyone wants to like, you know, protect their evenings and weekends or whatever. But for the most part, I would say that a lot of my meetings with clients actually happen prior to, let's say 5.30 or 6 p.m. And, uh, and outside of that, I don't know that I have much more regimented in my schedule other than the fact that I try to be as efficient as possible with my time. And I've got a lot, a lot of great people that I'm, you know, surrounded by to help me do that. Have you found any effective strategies to manage your energy from day to day to keep you, you know, pumped up for most of the day? Yeah, totally. Diet and nutrition is like, I, I've gone through a massive, that's a great question. That's a great, I'm so glad someone asked that. I mean, I, in 2007, when I was a workaholic and 
needed to make changes. I was 200, I think I peaked out at about 237 or 238 pounds. Like, I mean, I was, I was in really rough shape and it was, it's ridiculous to think that I got there because I've been an athlete my whole life. I played college basketball. I, you know, that, that's not who I was, but I had let everything go. And so in response to that, I made big changes in 2013. Anyways, I won't get into the, into, you know, what I did or, in, totally, but I implemented, you know, a new way of thinking about food and nutrition. And I live that up to this day. Now I, I will say, I actually stepped on the scale. I'm 12 pounds heavier today than I was this time last year. So COVID has certainly, I've gained roughly a pound a month through COVID. So I, I attribute that to uh, a little bit of everything, but definitely an a little bit of an increase in alcohol consumption and a little bit of a decrease in, uh, in regular exercise. But back to the original question of energy and, and how I approach my days, I've done two different things. So uh, I've had seasons in my life and I still do this where I will, you know, eat the typical early breakfast, get going, but I will put a lot of my, you know, more significant calories and sugars in, into the early part of the day so that by the time I get into the latter part of the afternoon, I'm actually consuming less and then dinner is smaller, you know, all with the goal of giving myself a ton of calories earlier on because you're going to take those calories and burn them throughout the day. I've also done fasting, which I really enjoyed and I think is really good. And I've actually been toying with going back to it. I think when I, I quit it, the last time I did it, it was working well, but then I quit. And I think the reason I quit is because I just, I... I started to get too extreme with it. So I started with um, trying to consume all my calories in an eight hour window, which was roughly like, you know, say 11 a.m. to 7 p.m. And that was going really, really well. And then once I got the hang of that, I started to really mess around with it. And then I tried to shorten that window to like, I think I even got down to like four or five hours. And that screwed me up. I should never have done that because when I did that, I started to wig out. Like I was, you know, um, I'd all of a sudden go on a rampage where, you know, I'm good for a number of days. And then all of a sudden I blow a gasket and I'm, you know, crushing a bag of potato chips, half a pizza and a Slurpee because I'm just so calorie deficient and I'm, I'm, I'm kind of like teetering on the edge. Right. So that was dumb. I think the, the way I did it, and it's probably the way it should be done, but the eight hour window, it felt really, really good. My, my tummy felt good because it gets a break. Uh, from digesting food for 16 hours and I felt like I had less inflammation and my energy levels were really really good and I would I would breeze through a morning no problem like just you know get up obviously consume lots of water but hit a coffee or two and I almost I got to the point where I had no desire to eat until lunch and then I would just you know do my typical 2500 to 3000 calories between lunch and 7 or 8 p.m. Yeah, it's called a 16 and 8. It's actually really healthy. Yeah, so I think I'm going to go back to that. I haven't done that. Like, it's probably, it was pre-pandemic that I did that. But I, I was reading about it actually uh, yesterday. And I think I screwed myself up by tightening my window up too much. I think I was just being a moron trying to, trying to play around with it. And I just, I, I, I lost my mind. And then I started eating way out of whack. And then before long, I just, you know, I just walked away from it. What does, uh, what does personal time look like for you? Do you purposefully try to make space for it each day, week, month? Like, how do you look at, how do you treat your personal time? So I have a small list of very close friends who, the one thing I would like to do, like would spend quality time with those people. So that's very valuable to me. 
and I try to have a something like that every week if possible. It doesn't always happen every week. I listen to podcasts. That's that is a great benefit to me. There's some, you know, I do I read uh I listen to podcasts. I'll watch people that I like on YouTube, like those same people that podcast or write or whatever. I'll, you know, I'll watch stuff if they make YouTube content. And then obviously, you know, I mean, I'm a, I got three kids, so I'm, I'm, um, some of my personal time is not necessary. It's scripted for me, right? I'm not necessarily writing it myself. It's just, it's the stuff that's got to get done. I will say that my wife, she's like, she runs the, she runs the show. I mean, I'm, I'm, um, I'm given a lot of freedom to be able to pour myself into my career and I'm not leaned on a ton for the kid activities, but I'm obviously involved in those too. And then I really, really love to, uh, I love to golf. And so I, golf season's just starting now and that will be, that's a way that I, whatever, just escape it all and unwind and decompress. I don't get to golf maybe as much as I would love to. It's probably a common saying that people say, but, but I really enjoy that. And I've got a regular group of guys that I golf with. Um, and we're all kind of, you know, we're all in various businesses somewhat related. And so we got commonalities and in life experience and things like that. And so I spend time golfing with them and that's really good. And when we're not in pandemic world, I love to travel specifically with my wife. I miss that significantly. That's like, that's been, that's been a real challenge. Like we were talking about that the other day, like we were in a rhythm for the last number of years where we would definitely be away alone once a year and sometimes more like, I mean, like sans kids, right? Like no kids, just, just the two of us. Yep. And so that's hard on marriage, you know, just not having that break. So yeah, that was, that, that's a huge aspect of our lives that we haven't had here in the last year. And who knows when we're going to get back to that. So have to maybe try to find a way to improvise, but that's something that I love a lot that obviously we haven't been able to do. You kind of lead into my next question, which is how do you, how do you manage your time as a husband, father, realtor, broker, owner, you know, finding that work-life balance? I should go walk. I'm, I'm in the garage, in the car doing this for noise. I should just go walk into the house and get Kristen on the line and let her answer that. I would say I, I mean, I try. What was the question? How do you manage? I would say I try. How do you manage your time? I try to manage. (laughs) It's a work in progress. I mean, if I equate my life now to what it was 15 years ago, I'm miles ahead. I mean, I have balance. I watch my kids play sports. I, you know, I'm, I'm home for dinner. I'm, you know, I, I'm around, but I would say that, you know, there are seasons where it's, it's very challenging. And I have an incredible partner who I'm married to and she is, um, I don't know. I don't know what to say. She's great for me. She's great to me. And so I wouldn't be able to do it without her. It's tough some days for sure, but she gives me the freedom to figure it out. And I would say for the most part, for the most part, I figure it out, but it's not always easy. For, for my next question, I know you hear this a lot. I would say almost every person I spoke to had this in some degree or another, and even so much so that we actually have a video coming out for our own agents this week. But what, uh, what suggestions or thoughts do you have for people trying to manage expectation and stress in a market where they just feel like they can't turn off? Oh, it's hard. So I had 
this weekend. So this is, I'll, I'll tell you, I'm not just, uh, I don't just preach it. I actually do it. I had somebody phone me up this weekend. There was a property that got listed as some crazy, you know, hot listing or whatever. Somebody who I know because they were, you know, referred to me way back when or whatever, but I haven't been in, in close touch with them recently, but I know them. These, these are people that I would consider to be clients and they go to this open house and they want to write an offer on this open house. So they, they message me this weekend. They're like, Hey, you know, we haven't talked in a while. Went to this open house. We want to write an offer. And to do that, like literally offers were being done that day. Like it was, it was on the weekend. And so I said, no, <laughs> you know, I, I said like, I wasn't, I wasn't available this weekend. I, I wrote them a message. I said, Hey, sorry, I'm, I'm unavailable this week, this, this weekend. And, and I mean, there's, there's a little bit more to the story. I don't want to get into to too many sure. of the details, but you know, a person might listening might be going, well, why didn't you get, call someone else up to do it or whatever. But I think that if you're willing to give everything away, this industry will take everything. I don't even remember what your original question is, but I'm just, I'm just saying, you know, you, you've got to, in this environment, if you tell yourself you're always available, then there's always going to be something for you to do. And I think in this environment, we have to discipline ourselves to turn off. Even if it is for half a day, you have to, at some point in time, be unavailable to the world and only available to yourself. And so I'm sharing this particular story because I'm not just saying it, I'm saying that I'm actually practicing it. I had an opportunity to go potentially sell a property and I said no, because I was not available. I was with my family. I was doing things that were important. And in previous years gone by, I would have dropped everything and I would have gone and done that, but I didn't do it. And I don't care who you are, whether you're one year in the business or 28 years in the business, this market eats everybody the same. Now, maybe, you know, if you're new in the business and you haven't made sales and, you know, there are absolutely sacrifices that you make early on in your career that you don't necessarily make later on in your career. But we are all human beings and we all melt down and we all have a breaking point. And so you've got to turn it off at some point in time for your own sanity. Yeah, I, I think that's really important. I think you've got to force yourself to do that. And you know what? There's a saying, and I'll, I'll totally bastardize it and not get it right, but it's something to the effect of like, you know, if something's really worth doing, then it's worth costing you something, you know? And, and, and sometimes maybe that means you're saying no to business or walking away from an opportunity, but, but that's how you know it's worth it is if you're willing to have it cost you something. What would you say is your favorite thing to do with your family? <laughs> we went on a, I've been trained to like this. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So my wife loves hiking and like, I, I don't know. I still say I hate hiking, but I don't know. I, I hike a lot now. So <laughs> maybe I love hiking. I don't know. We went on a, we went on a hike today, whatever. It was probably like an hour and a half, maybe two hours. It was great. Like I had, I would say that like, it was really cool to be, you know, walking through the forest, looking at my three kids. We've got the dog in tow and uh, everybody was happy outdoors doing something together. I enjoyed that. And, I, and, and you know what? I had to be trained in that. I don't love hiking. Like I never liked it, but I've been forced to do it enough now that I, that I like it. 
You know what? Actually, I can't believe I'm forgetting this. My favorite family activity is skiing, snow skiing, because my kids all love it. They're all good at it. So it's just, it's just something that like all of us can be on the hill together and, and nobody's like, I don't know, everybody's kind of on an equal plane, if that makes sense. Right. And we can all, you know, we can all do the same runs together and be together or whatever. We have a lot of great memories. We haven't done it for a long time. We got into it about four or five years ago as a family. And, uh, it's an awesome, yeah, it's just a lot of great memories for us. And also I love vacationing with my kids. And again, you know, I miss that deeply, but I love taking them to, you know, Mexico or, uh, Disneyland or Hawaii or whatever. Like we have uh, lots of amazing, great memories doing that. And so I can't wait to do that again. My kids talk about, they still bring it up. I think some, one of them brought it up this weekend. A few years ago, we went to the hard rock, uh, resort in Mexico. Like it's one of these all inclusive resorts, right? I don't even know where it was in Mexico, but they just had the time of their, <laughs> they had the time of their lives. And they still talk about it to this day. And I mean, I remember being there thinking like, ah, it's just whatever. It's just another all-inclusive in Mexico. But um, in their memory bank, uh, the Hard Rock is like the best family vacation we've ever been on. That's cool. So if you had four hours to do anything you wanted, no responsibilities alone or with another person or people, what would it be? I'm not sure why they chose four hours, but that's what you get. (laughs) (laughs) Four hours. Not five, not three, no, not four five, hours. not even four and a half. Yep. Well, with four hours, I mean, I'm probably not going to golf because I don't want to try to go. I don't like rushing when I golf and that's going to be a, that's going to be a fast round. So it's not going to be golf with four hours with four hours. It's going to be, um, huh? What do I do with four hours? It's probably, here's what it would be with four hours. It would be a workout and it would either be listening to a podcast or reading a book that I'm into. That would be a pretty good four hours. I would, I would work out first, eat something delicious and then, and then listen to a good podcast. That would probably be a a really, a really good four hours spent. If, uh, if you could go back in time and talk to first or second year, Andrew, the agent, what would you tell him to concentrate on as a new agent? Hmm. Concentrate on the relationships. Don't be so transaction focused. For the amount of business that I did in the early part of my career, I should have, I should still have more of those relationships, but I don't because I was only focused on the transaction and everybody in the transaction knew it, including the client. And so the transaction happened, they got the house, I got the money, but there was nothing left after that. So that really shifted for me as I discussed already in later years. But if I could talk to that young, dumb kid, that's what I would, that's what I would say. What do you, what do you love most about what you do? Well, it feels really good. I think I've kind of talked about this already, but it feels really good to, to know that I've had a part to play in something positive in people's lives, you know, and, and for me now I sit in two chairs, right? So I get to do that on a brokerage level, which is, which is really awesome. But then like, you know, for, for years I've done that as on the agent level and by far, that's the thing I enjoy the most. I mean, I could even say that's the, that's the only thing I like. Um, I mean, that's not, that's not entirely true. I, I do think that like this career, it's amazing. Like you have an opportunity to 
to build something really cool, have fun, and make a really good income. And so I think it would be unfair not to mention that aspect in that, you know, I can't imagine I'd be doing this if I was making $50,000 a year. So we have an opportunity to carve out a pretty incredible life as real estate agents. And I think that that is a really unique and amazing opportunity. And I'm, that's something that I'm extremely thankful for. And I, and I would, it would not be a true statement to not include that as one of the reasons why I do what I do. If you could look forward a little bit, who's Andrew Bracewell in 10 years? Well, same guy, Mm -hmm. wiser, (laughs) you know, older (laughs) and wiser, hopefully, uh, hopefully learned how to not stick my foot in my mouth. Although, you know what I want to say, I I, I guess now that I have the microphone, maybe I get to say this. I, I do think that I say a lot of the same stuff that I did when I was 23. The difference is that there's a few things going on there. Number one, people just have to put up with it because you're older. (laughs) So there's a little bit of that, but it's also learning how to, you know, it's learning how to say things or learning how to package things. And then sometimes, yes, it's just not putting your foot in your mouth and being a dumbass. So I would like to think that, you know, yeah, when I'm 10 years from now, I'm going to be that much smarter and wiser, have that much more perspective and empathy for people. I think that I've, in the last few years, I've, I've grown in that area. I've gained a lot more empathy for people. And I, I, I want to continue to grow in that. I want to be more understanding of different people's places in life and see, you know, see things from others' perspectives. I want to keep going down the path I'm on. Like, I, I don't know, I don't know entirely how it's going to look, but I think that we're going to do some awesome things with Little Oak. And I'm excited to see what that looks like in the next, you know, five to 10 years. All right. So listen, once the pandemic is whatever it is behind us, maybe a little bit and you can vacation, where's the first vacation going to be? And while you're there, what's the beverage of choice? (laughs) Oh, it's going to be so hard because when we can, when we can travel, oh yeah. So it's probably going to end up being Hawaii because so the backstory to that is we were scheduled to go to Hawaii my kids have never actually been in, well, that's not true. One of my kids have been in Hawaii, but my kids have no memory of Hawaii. My wife and I, I think my wife's been to Hawaii six times. I think I've been five times. My kids really wanted to go. We were scheduled to be there last March and then, you know, the pandemic hit and we were one of those like, whatever. We were looking at the world and although the flights hadn't been shut down, uh, I actually phoned Paul Penner was in Hawaii. He was in the same location we were going to. If this was probably like March, I don't even know. I want to say like March 18, 19. Shit's going sideways. You know, things are going crazy. I phone Paul. I'm like, hey, Paul, like you're there. What's going on? And Paul's like, oh, it's amazing. You got to come. <laughs> He's like, there's nobody here. It's fantastic. Um, but, you know, I couldn't do it. We pulled the pin. And so um, we didn't do that trip. And so for that reason, I would think that we're probably going to hit Hawaii pretty soon because the kids are pretty disappointed that we didn't do that trip. But something I want to do because of the age of our kids and, you know, I think they're in a really good spot for it is, is I would love to take a, you know, a fairly long trip to Europe. And my kids right now are 14, almost 12, and then almost 10. So I think like in the next, like I'm really hoping in the next, like, you know, year or two that 
we can uh we can do like maybe a three or four week trip in europe somewhere and spend a good amount of time you know whatever just seeing a part of the world that that we've never seen with them and the and the beverage of choice while you're at either of those two options well my my go-to beverage like in life like if i'm just like if i sit down in any unknown location and somebody says do you want to drink i'm going old-fashioned every day of the week but if i was you know if i mean some of that is you know if i'm if i'm in whatever if i'm at some whatever bistro in italy i mean maybe i'm maybe i'm drinking a bordeaux or something like that right or or um or some chianti but but i i would say i'm the old-fashioned uh is my is my go-to no matter where i am usually sweet well hey listen man this was a lot of fun no no kidding that was uh i've never i haven't been on the hot seat like that i really liked that that was that was a lot of fun yeah, it was. I'm not going to really thank you for being on your own podcast, but it's cool that you were up for doing it and open to questions. I know a lot of agents had been wanting to ask. Yeah, those questions were unbelievable. I mean, how many, how many, how many people or how many questions did you get there? I uh, we didn't even get through all of them, but it was a lot. Wow, it was a lot. A lot of double ups, a lot of triple ups, quadruple ups. Like there were there were a bit, so it was fun. Well, that was uh, I. I appreciate you riding shotgun and uh, and guiding me through. You were you were excellent at what you did. Now we got to make sure we got a recorded one for two weeks from now, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I actually have, I have a, I have a really, I don't want to spoil it, so I won't give it away. It's a good one. But here's a, here's a shameless plug for an interview I have coming up with, um, with two of our agents. It's, it's a topical one and I think, I think it's going to be awesome. And I just, uh, I'm, I'm hoping to get it done here in the next week. Mm-hmm. Next week's is going to be good too. It's Tom O'Hara. Spoiler. Oh, awesome. Cool. Okay. All right, man. Well, thanks. That was fun. Okay. We'll see you later. Catch you later. Bye for now.